2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, I, I, uh, be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, as some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing for you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I think most everyone is generous. I think that's where we start this morning. The question usually is not, Will you be generous? Now, there may be one or two of you that absolutely is just hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and doesn't want to give anything away. But, but my guess is, and my experience with the church has been that most of you, your heart's desire is to be generous. In fact, my experience is most of you give and give quite freely. The question usually is not, will you be generous? The question is, what will you be generous to? Now, that gets to the, the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Because what you're generous to is a very personal matter. What you love, what you cherish, what you honor, what you think has great value, what you think is of great significance and importance, that tends to be where your generosity flows to. It's a personal issue. It's a a heart issue. So Paul is dealing with those issues in this chapter. He's dealing with the heart issue. We're going to talk about that some uh, this morning. But he also is talking about a, a practical matter. 
So one of the things, and we'll discuss this more later, but the Corinthian church had demonstrated their heart in the matter of generosity previously. They had made a pledge, in fact, a very generous pledge. But Paul understands some dynamics of life, and that is that if, if, if you have the desire alone, it won't actually, it often does not translate into obedience and faithfulness. So there has to be a practical response to the desire of our heart. And so he's, he's responding to the church with some practical counsel and leadership that I hope we will see today. As I've already said, if you were with me when I preached chapter 8, you, you may think, well, we've already covered some of this. But, but Paul, again in chapter 9, returns to this, this issue of giving and the offering that the Corinthian church had made. Um, this chapter, chapter 9, may be the most often used scripture when preaching on giving and generosity. And uh, that primarily comes because of that wonderful verse where it says, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I'm not taking anything away from that. God does love a cheerful giver. I hope today you will hear from me how you can be a cheerful giver. I was looking in my own files just to see how often I have been in this passage. I preached over the course of my ministry out of chapter 9 six times, five of which, including this one, were right here from, from this pulpit. So, and most of those were sermons about generosity and giving. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians is a significant text for understanding how we should give. It's a rich passage for the topic of generosity. However, this passage is more than just a command to be generous. So if that's all you hear today, I think you've missed the, the, the fuller, greater sense of, of the passage. This passage also teaches us practical truths as to how we can be cheerful givers and how your giving is a testimony to the grace you have received and the transformation that God has brought to your heart. So there, there's more here. There's more here than we're going to deal with today, but here are the, the three big ideas that I want to, to communicate this morning from this passage. Number one, generosity requires discipline. It requires discipline. I'm going to make the case this morning that it's more than just desire, that there's got to be a discipline that follows through from your desire to be to be generous. Number two and three are testimonies. So generosity is a testimony of grace. And then the last is that generosity is a testimony of your heart. But let's begin where Paul begins. In the first five verses, he begins with an understanding that generosity requires discipline. And, and here's, here's, here's the first idea here. Desire is not enough. Desire is not enough. Notice how Paul begins this chapter. He begins as you always ought to begin when, when dealing with a difficult subject. He begins on a positive note. So he says, it's superfluous. In other words, I don't even need to say it. I don't even need to talk about it. For, he says, for me to write to you about the ministry of the, uh, for the saints, for I know your readiness. In other words, brothers and sisters, there's no need for me to bring up again that the purpose of the offering, that the need of the offering, or even your desire. I know your heart. I know your desire. In other words, no need for me to do that. And then he says in, 
He says, I know in, in verse 2, he says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. So in other words, he says, I know your heart on this matter. I know you desire to be generous. I know your desire to support the, the brothers and sisters of the faith back in Jerusalem. I know your heart is to support the ministry of the gospel. As you read these words, I think it is helpful for us to be reminded the context of which they were written. Paul began this letter to the church of Corinthians at, with a defense of his ministry. You may remember the, the very opening chapter, chapter 1, Paul's defending himself against some who were accusing him in the, in the Corinthian church of being uh, not true to his word. There were some in the church that were challenging his leadership and questioning his trustworthiness. And also be reminded that in the previous chapters, Paul indicated that his last letter to the church, we, most scholars think there is a, a letter that was written in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and that letter is probably the one that, that was, was most harsh. But even in 1st Corinthians, the letter that we have in our scripture, 1st Corinthians, Paul deals with some very difficult things, issues of sin in the church. And in a previous chapter in this letter, Paul says, listen, I know that was a painful thing to receive. He's been encouraged to hear that the church has repented of the, of the called out sin. However, it's important to remember he has not personally been with the church since they received his letter um, that communicated the difficult truths. And he's not personally been with the church since he's received word of the dissension, the, those who were uh, pushing back against his leadership and, and accusing him of not being true to his word. As we sometimes say when attempting to describe a situation that has many dimensions, we just say, well, it's complicated. And I think you can say about Paul's relationship to Corinth, it's complicated. He's not real sure, I don't think, how this letter will be uh, received. Not totally sure how Titus and these two brothers that he's sending with Titus will be received. And in that context, again, Paul turns in this chapter to talk, about, uh, to, uh, talk about the gift that the Corinthian church had promised to give the Christians in Jerusalem. Now, friends, you may not know anything about first century culture, but you know enough about your own culture that you can appreciate that talking about money is always a bit awkward, isn't it? And, and even worse, talking about money when somebody's not done something they promised to do with money gets even more complicated. And then you add into that all the complicated relational dynamics between Paul and the church. You can appreciate that as Paul begins chapter 9, he's beginning chapter 9 unsure of maybe how they'll receive this or even unsure with if the church will be faithful to the gift that they had promised. And so he begins, as you ought to begin in such a situation, on a positive note that he affirms uh, uh, the, the, the church, in the first opening verses of this chapter, he affirms that he is confident in the church's desire and their, or their readiness to give. That's verse, verse 2. And he affirms how their zeal to be generous has been an encouragement to the churches in Macedonia to also be gracious. So he's basically saying, brothers, sisters, your, the, the testimony of your earnestness, your zeal to give, has been a huge encouragement to other churches to also give and be generous. However, Paul understands that desire and initial zeal is not enough to sustain generosity. 
Now, I said from the beginning, and I want to articulate again, I believe most, if not all, Christians desire to be generous. Frankly, in all of my years of ministry, I've had lots of conversations about giving and generosity. I cannot remember any where a believer, a true believer, came up to me and said, Pastor, I just will not, cannot, don't want to give. I've had hundreds of conversations where people have said, I want to give more, but I'm struggling with just the, the dollars and cents of it. I've, I've overextended over, over, uh, myself here or, or whatever. And I've had conversations with people who have come to the church, become believers late in life, and they've squandered much of their resources and they're, they're heartbroken. That they, listen, I've had all of those conversations, but, but undergirding most of them were, was a desire to be generous to the work of God and the ministry of God. There may be a few that struggle with a rebellious attitude toward giving, but I believe most of you genuinely desire to be generous and gracious and want with what you have for the work of the kingdom of God. I think that's where Paul begins these first two opening verses. I am confident, dear Corinthians, in your zeal, in your passion, in your desire to give. Yet Paul knew that desire without discipline would not result in, dis, in, in obedience. You see, for you to practice willing generosity, it certainly requires having a desire to do so, but it also, um, however, that desire must be coupled with discipline or um, your desire will be drowned out by the demands of life. Have you ever desired to do something and you thought, well, one of these days we'll do that, but you turn around 30 years later and you've never done it? And it's not because the desire wasn't there. But it's because you were raising children. You were going to work. You were dealing with the, the broken water heater and the, and the car that needed repair and all the other things of life that just came up and demanded your attention and you never got around to doing whatever it was that 30 years ago you said we ought to do. Desire is the want to, but discipline is the how to. So, faithful generosity is planned, not spontaneous. So, in, in, in verse 3 and in verse 5, Paul says that he is sending the brothers. Now, who are the brothers? In chapter 8, we are introduced to them. We don't know their names. We know that one of them is a brother who is well-known for his preaching of the gospel. We know the other that is a brother who's been well-tested uh, in, in various situations and is trusted by Paul. We know that both of them have been confirmed by the churches that knew them to send them to the Corinthian church as uh, brothers in Christ to assist Timothy in the work there. And Paul says that he's sending these brothers to the church to arrange in advance for the gift that, he, that, that, that was promised. Now, I think the key to this, to understanding this, are the two words in verse 5, in advance. Now, in the Greek, it's actually just one word. Maybe some of your translations, the American Standard translates it in one word with one word just beforehand. Notice what he says in, in verse 5. He says, um, so, so I thought it necessary, required, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance. Or some of your translations may say arrange beforehand for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. 
That word there that's translated beforehand or in advance simply means, it's actually two words put together. One means before, above, ahead, or before, or in front of. And the other one means uh, to, to, to get ready, to prepare, to complete, uh, to equip. So in other words, to prepare, to equip, before. Before you need or before the, uh, the, the, the gift is required. Now, I think this is a testimony of grace in Paul's leadership of the church. He knew that the generosity promised would be a burden on the church and the individual members of the church if it was demanded all at once. The brothers go ahead so to encourage the church to prepare their gift. Now, this preparation will allow for Paul's joy to receive in, in receiving the gift, and I think it's allowing for the church's joy in giving the gift. They'll have the gift ready, and it will be a willing gift when Paul is, when comes, rather than being extracted out of some kind of force or obligation. The more famous verse in this chapter is verse 7. Well, we're going to get to that later where, where Paul declares that God loves a cheerful giver. But the reality is many struggle with being a cheerful giver because you are not able to spontaneously give generously. In other words, right now, in this moment, there's just not tons of extra cash in your, in your banking account that if a, a spontaneous, overwhelming, bountiful, generous gift was asked for, frankly, friends, you could not give it because you do not have it. Cheerful giving is provided for by planned giving. That's what I mean is that generosity requires discipline. If you want to be a cheerful giver, and if you want to be a generous giver, it's going to require more than desire. It requires that you be disciplined to prepare the gift beforehand. Generosity requires discipline. And then two testimonies I want you to see out of this passage. Number one Generosity is a testimony to grace. Now, generosity, I think, begins with experiencing grace. In verse 7, Paul assigns to each person the authority to decide how much he or she will give. He says in that verse, he says, um, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart. Paul was not concerned with the amount someone gave. The amount given was to be a proportion to what someone had. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, so the previous chapter in verse 12, it says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left and over and whoever gathered little had no lack. No amount is set as the correct righteous amount. There are some false teachers out there today. If you flip on your television this afternoon, you might find one that'll tell you you just need to write a check. Don't worry about what's in your bank account. Now, I'm just going to tell you a little practical advice. If you have $100 in your checking account today and you write a $1,000 check this afternoon, it will bounce. Amen? And it is foolish for you and I think unwise for you, and I don't think has any biblical support at all for you to lie about how much is in your checking account. You cannot give $1,000 if all you have is 100 So notice Paul does not put an amount on this. 
You're not more spiritual or less spiritual. You're not more righteous or less righteous depending on the amount. You can only give what you have. And in, and in chapter 9, that's what chapter 8 says. And in chapter 9, Paul says, listen, you have to give what you've decided to give in your own heart. There's no amount here. There's no specifics given. The greater issue that Paul is driving at is the heart that motivates the gift. So, so Paul doesn't say, listen, God give, God, he doesn't say God loves big givers. <laughs> and he doesn't say God gives, loves those who give more than anybody else. He says God loves a cheerful giver. That's an issue of the heart, not an issue of the amount. Paul was clear that giving was not to be from, and, and three things here, extraction, that's what he says in verse 5. In other words, when I show up, I don't want this gift to be out of compulsion that you're demanded to give and you feel some kind of obligation there. In fact, the, the word that is used there means to take advantage of someone usually as a result of motivation uh, of greed. In other words, to pressure somebody to give something that they don't want to give. Paul says, your gift should not be from extraction. He says in verse 6 that it should not, should not be given reluctantly or grudgingly. The word there means to, a state of unhappiness marked by regret as a result of what has been done. In other words, when you give to the Lord and the ministry of the Lord, it should not be a gift that you give with an unhappy heart or that you regret that you've given. I, listen to me carefully. If that's where you are today, for your own soul's sake, keep your money. Because that's not the way a gift before the Lord should be given. And Paul also says in verse 6 that it shouldn't be given out of compulsion. That word there means an the, the Greek word there that means an obligation of compelling nature, a, a necessary obligation. In other words, all gifts to the Lord should be free will offerings. And that's, why, that's why the church doesn't send out a bill. Praise God for that. Amen. So when you came in this morning, there was no expectation that you would give anything in the offering today. Listen, friends, if all you do is come in here and hear the gospel preached to you, that's okay. Because other believers have generously given out of their free will so that this building can be here, that this air conditioning can be on, that these lights can be on, and that I can prepare to preach for you that you might hear the gospel. They gave that not out of compulsion. They gave that out of freedom so that you might hear freely this morning. This is why it's dangerous for a preacher to preach this passage wrongly and equally dangerous to avoid preaching it at all. Now, the wrong way to preach this passage is to say that if you, if you give something, you're going to get something. That's not a free will offering. A free will offering is that you give freely with no expectation of anything in return. All of us at some point in our lives have, have received a gift that had strings. Old friends, give that one back in a hurry. A true gift is a gift that's given to you without any strings attached. That's a free will offering. So to wrongly preach this passage is to, is to put some obligation or some compulsion upon you that you must give, that you have to give, to be right with before God, that it's demanded that you give. And that's an extraction out of you, out, out of guilt or compulsion. But, but you know the other thing is it's also equally dangerous not to preach this passage at all because it does declare that God loves a cheerful giver and we ought to pay attention to what God loves. There's a lot of dysfunction in this world today about giving. There's a lot of false teaching in this world today about giving. And, and the two things I see that are happening in the context of church, some preach about this all the time dysfunctionally and wrongly. And others never preach about it at all because they don't want to sound like the guys that are preaching about it wrongly. 
That's why, by the way, there's a benefit in just preaching through books of the Bible. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians always comes after chapter 8. And so that's where we are this morning for your blessing and for mine. Friends, giving is, a, is symptomatic of other things. How you give testifies to the grace that you have known. Generosity, you see, is a, it's a testimony to the grace that you have received. If you have experienced the grace of God, your generosity will reflect the grace that you have received. If you're attempting to please God through legalistic obedience, your approach to giving will be equally legalistic. Experiencing God's grace makes the wealth of this world seem small and, the, and generosity for the kingdom a joyful sacrifice. Generosity also testifies to God's provision. If you'll look with me in verse 10 and 11, the Bible says, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In these verses, Paul declares that God is the one who supplies both the seed to be sown and the bread to be eaten. And beyond providing the seed and the bread, God also provides for the abundance of the harvest. This points to a critical perspective that Christians must have, and that is that God provides all things. If you are blind to God's provision, then you will also be blind to God's grace. If you're not able to see and recognize that, you, what you, that what you have is God provided, then you will also be blind to his grace. Everything we have is because of the grace of God. Where you live is an act of God's grace. Who is in your family, and I mean all of them, is an act of God's grace. <laughs> what you can do physically, mentally, is an act of God's grace. Your skills, what you know, what you can accomplish is an act of God's grace. When you are aware of God's provision, then you will also be aware of God's grace. When you recognize that God has already been bountiful for, towards you, it will lead you to also be bountiful toward others in your generosity. And when you lose sight of the provision of God, you will become thankless and blind to the grace of God. Your generosity testifies to your understanding of how God has provided for you. You recognize that abundance is not given for your pleasure alone, but for the blessing of others. So give according to the abundance of God's provision. And understand that generosity is a testimony to the grace that you have known. Now, there's a second testimony, and that is that it's a testimony of your heart. What you love, what you honor, what you treasure... And as that testimony of your heart, I, I want to just give you three things here of the way you should give. First, you should give with a glad or a cheerful heart. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giving. I think there's more to say, though, and that is that cheerful giving is an expression of faith. 
If you look back in the passage, in verse 7 it says, God loves a cheerful giver. But keep reading. Verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Cheerful giving is an expression of faith, a believing that God is able, believing that God has provided, and believing that God will continue to provide. The faith of a cheerful giver flows from the belief that God is able. A Christian's ability to abound in every good work is dependent upon the ability of God to make grace abound in your life. The word there that's translated as cheerful means pertaining to be happy, cheerful, one who is happy. There's some things that we pay for that we're not happy about. When April 15th rolls around every year, are you happy about that check? I'm not so happy that, that time of year. If you, if you get a speeding ticket and you have to write that fine, that check, are you happy about that? Mm, probably not. Because those are out of compulsion. Those are being demanded of you. You don't have an option about that. But the declaration of Scripture is that God loves a cheerful giver, and cheerful giving is a, a giving with a glad heart flows from faith that God has provided abundantly, that God will continue to provide abundantly. Cheerful giving is not about the amount given. It's not about that God needs your giving. And it's certainly not about earning favor before the Lord. But cheerful giving is grace-driven and gospel-centered. It is not a gift to get something in return. It is a response to the grace received. It is a response to the need of others to receive the grace of God that you have already received. So give with a glad heart. Secondly, give to be a blessing. And verse 6 uses the word bountiful. Bountiful. Give to be a blessing to others. The word that is translated as bountiful means, uh, uh, it's, it's an idiom that literally means on the basis of blessings. So a large amount of something with the implication of blessing or benefit. So there's a difference in something you might give. Sometimes we give just enough. When you're purchasing something and somebody says, this item costs this amount, Let's just say it costs $5. You never give $10 and say, just be blessed. No, you give the amount required and you get the product. But joyful giving, cheerful giving, Paul says give bountifully. In other words, give more than is expected that you might bless others, that there's a bountifulness in your giving. Both the giver and the recipient are blessed through bountiful giving. The recipient is blessed by receiving the provisions needed and enabled to do gospel work. The giver is blessed in that they receive the joy of giving, giving and they get to participate in what God is doing. This is the attitude of a cheerful giver, that your giving would be a blessing to those who receive it. Give with a cheerful heart. Give in order to bless others. And give in order to be a conduit of grace. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now let's be very, very honest with one another. God does not need your gift. 
It's why, even though it may make our stewardship committee a little nervous, it's why I confidently say, if you're struggling to give with a joyful heart this morning, it would be better for your soul to keep your money. It's why I said uh, when we preached through chapter 8 that if you think we need it, want it, demand it, or if you think the church is only about money, for your own soul's sake, keep your money because it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's hindering you from hearing the gospel this morning. In Acts chapter 17, it says, that the, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he saved by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having uh, uh, determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God does not need you. God does not need me. God does not need Central Baptist. He does not need the things of this world. To preach that God needs your money would be to reduce the one true God down to be among the, the weakness of pagan idols. Pagan idols needed to be picked up and carried places. Pagan idols need to be attended to and, and cared for and repaired and supported. But the God of all creation, dear friends, does not need any of that. God does not need what you have, but he will use your giving not only for others, but for the giver as well. It's interesting in the end of this chapter. Oh, I think beginning somewhere around verse 11. Paul says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What he's getting at there, in fact, he, he talks about all the way through to the end of the chapter, the thanksgiving and the joy that will be produced, both to those who receive and those that are giving, is that the grace of God is abounding in the good work and in the spirit that is uh, being advanced. So cheerful giving leads to gratitude. That's good. Thanksgiving by the one receiving and thanksgiving by the one who is able to give. Because cheerful giving is kingdom-focused. Such giving recognizes that if Jesus could feed thousands with a boy's fish and bread, he can do great things with your meager resources. Cheerful giving recognizes that you are part of the kingdom of God, and in your giving, in your bountiful giving, God is using you as a conduit of his grace to bless others. And that is producing in others thanksgiving, not to you for the gift, but thanksgiving to God who's provided through you the gift that was received. Cheerful giving is, motive, is grace motivated in that in giving you express the grace that was shown to you on the cross. Therefore, you give not because it was earned or deserved, but because of grace. Cheerful giving is God honoring that God loves a cheerful giver. His heart rejoices when you give with joy. Therefore, worship must include and never be free from the opportunity to give freely. Friends, I think God desires because it declares that he loves. I think he desires for you to be conduits of grace to other believers through your giving. You and I have a very different response to expected and unexpected expenses. 
When I say unexpected, I mean those, those things that, that crop up in your life that you didn't see coming. Now, there's some things that you know are coming every month. So, every month I have expenses for housing, for utilities, and other living expenses. And because I know those expenses are coming every month, uh, they're part of our household budget. And because those expenses are part of my household budget, I, to be totally honest, I just don't think a whole lot about writing those checks because they, they're going out every month. I've planned for them. The money's been set aside for them. And, and uh, there's not a lot of emotional intensity when I have to write those checks for, my, for, for houses and for house and for utilities and, and those sort of things. But expenses that arise unexpectedly often give rise to anxiety and fretfulness. Sometimes these, these expenses in their actual dollar amount are less than things that we spend on expected uh, uh, expenses. But because you had not planned for them, they, they upset your heart. They, they give you a, a dynamic of anxiety and fretfulness. Our family... We typically drive cars until the wheels fall off. And as a result of that, um, we have to plan for periodic car repair. It's been a while ago now, but one particular month, our cars, one of our cars required an extremely expensive car repair. You know how that emotion happens. Something happens on your car, that check engine light comes on, you get a little twinge of anxiety, oh no. You take it to your mechanic, your mechanic looks at it, and he says, man, I hate to tell you. If your mechanic ever tells you he hates to tell you something, I see you over there. Um, it's a bad moment. You kind of you gird yourself up for what's about to come next. And what came next was unpleasant news. This is what's wrong. This is what it's going to cost to fix your, your car. Well, you probably can identify well with the anxiety that that, that produces. Now, it doesn't really matter, matter the amount. It's just that it's unexpected. It was unanticipated. You didn't plan on spending that money. Well, I, I got the news how much it was going to cost to, to repair the car. And, and uh, I went home and, um, to see if what we needed to do. And, and we had just decided that if... We, we didn't have the money to make the repair. We would just park the car until we could save up the money and, and, uh, and, and, and do it that way. And so I went home, and, and uh, like you all would do, you, you, you go to your family budget. And we've been putting a little money aside uh, in our budget for, for car repairs. And when I went home and checked our budget, we had, it was less than $10 more than what the car repair was going to cost. Now, listen to me. I still had to pay the money for the car repair. But in that moment where I saw that there was enough money already set aside for it, I had a very different emotional response to the cost. I went home with anxiety, worry, and fretfulness. Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, how burdensome it's going to be to go down to a one-car family and all that kind of stuff. But when I got home and I saw that, the, that there was enough money that had been set aside, two things happened. Number one, my anxiety went away. And number two, it produced in me a thanksgiving, a heart of thanksgiving that God had provided. 
God had provided for me not only in the, the income that he had given us, but also in the wisdom to set aside some money. And he demonstrated his great provision for us in that we had just enough with a little left over to take care of the, the car repair. So I was able to call my mechanic up. Let's do the repair. I was able to write the check in enjoy willfully paying the money because God had provided for me enough to give. Friends, willful generosity also comes through the provision of God and the wisdom to budget and save. Knowing the grace of God gives you the desire for the generosity, but knowing the wisdom of God compels you to plan and save for generosity. I want you to hear two things out of chapter 9. Number one, God wants you to be a joyful, happy-hearted, cheerful giver. That generosity testifies to the grace that you have received, and it testifies to your heart before the Lord to give uh, bountifully and generously to the Lord. But I also want you to hear this. If you're to be a cheerful, generous, bountiful giver, if you're to be a give willfully before the Lord, it also requires that you plan, that you intend to give generously, that before the gift is needed, that you plan and provide for that gift. May God find us both willing, desiring, and disciplined to be generous, willful givers. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.